With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 11th episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security, privacy risks, and issues, and also help to highlight current issues that need to be discussed more to help reduce breaches and security incidents. And I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their own privacy. Please check out my websites, privacyprofessor.org, simis360.com, and privacyguidance.com. Now, I've heard from so many of you, and thank you for all the great feedback since I started my radio show just a few weeks ago. I really do appreciate it. And I've gotten some really great suggestions for some very specific niche type of topics and some very unique guests. And I have those on the back burner right now. I've also noticed that my two most common types of requests are one, to have more guests on to discuss broad topics of interest to everyone in the general public, as well as information security and privacy pros, such as hacking that I discussed on the show with Dave Cronister, cyber criminals and famous court cases, such as my show with Mark Rash, who was involved with the Morris Worm case and the case where Clifford Stoll caught the European hackers, espionage, such as I discussed with Christopher Burgess and his experiences in the CIA, the breakthroughs and leading-edge topics, such as my discussion with Michelle Dumais for securing medical cannabis dispensaries and protecting the privacy of the patients that use them, and also uh, Katina Michael, who discussed privacy issues with those implantable computing devices that we're seeing more of, and identity theft, which I discussed with Mari Frank. But... I'm also getting a lot of other requests in another category, and that is number two, to have more guests to discuss their careers and give career advice. I've heard from some teens trying to figure out their senior year classes to take and then the majors to consider in college. I've heard from recent college grads asking me about such things as, you know, should they be a consultant versus being a practitioner? I've heard from career changers, such as those who wanted to do something completely different, like move from being a nurse to being in the privacy space. I've also heard from many women who have taken time to raise children over the years, and now they're ready to get back in 
to the work area and start a new career, and they're really interested in data security and privacy. And I'm hearing from more and more retirees who have told me that, you know, they want to do interesting work, and they're ready to get back and start doing things in data security and privacy. And also, I've heard a lot of interest from folks who are considering being entrepreneurs. And I've got a lot of requests for more career advice after my great show last week with Linda Cadigan. So today, I'm going to discuss the benefits of networking and belonging to professional associations. Now, I first joined some association groups in college while I was getting my bachelor's degrees in math and computer science. I've belonged since that time a member of the Association of Computing Machinery, or ACM, and also the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, or IEEE. And I'm still a member of them both, and I find them both valuable for keeping up with new tech, and I've also participated in groups that they had for creating new standards, doing research, and writing articles for them. Now, I joined my first two professional career associations in 1990, very early in my career, and right after I had moved from being a systems engineer for almost two years to being an IT auditor. As soon as I became an IT auditor, my managers there encouraged me to join these two organizations. So one I joined was the IIA, the Institute of Internal Auditors. And I also joined in 1990 the EDPAA, the Electronic Data Processing Auditors Association, which uh, changed their name a few years after that to the Information Systems Audit and Control Association, or ISACA for short. ISACA now goes by its acronym only, and I understand that they did that to reflect upon the really broad range of information assurance professionals it now serves that go far beyond IT auditing, such as for information security, um, privacy, digital forensics, and so on. I'm no longer a member of the IIA, but I've stayed active in ISACA, and I've held all the officer roles uh, throughout the late 1990s in my Des Moines, Iowa, ISACA chapter. And now I do a lot of work for them from their corporate office. I also belong to ISC Squared, ISSA, which I've done several webinars for and written for, and IAPP, where I've been an instructor for many of their certification classes. Yes, I'm stretched a bit thin by belonging to so many of them, but you know what? I find value in all of them because they have so many great resources and they all have a little bit different perspective from the resources that they're providing. Well, I have some great guests to speak with today about their careers and how professional associations in general and ISACA in particular have provided them with professional advantages and networking opportunities and a variety of other benefits throughout the, um, throughout their years. So let me introduce them right now. My guest today, first of all, Jarrett Fluger, is the founder of Tixis Limited, 
specializing in energy subsector information technologies and edge microservices programming. Jarrett's been an independent IT consultant for 17 years and a cybersecurity consultant for over five years. We also have Solomon Smith, COO and CISO for ProCircular, who has over 15 years of leading security programs and helping large government, insurance, and educational industries to reduce risk. Prior to joining ProCircular, Solomon spent over 10 years as the information security and privacy officer for a global education company. And we also have Bill Wells, who has worked for Fortune 100 and Global 500 companies for over 30 years in IT and IT-related positions. Bill has over 15 years of experience assessing information security compliance to various industry and regulatory requirements. And you can find so much more about the careers of all three of my guests at my Voice America business page. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for being my guests today to discuss information security and privacy careers and also your experiences with ISACA and other professional associations. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank yeah, you, Rebecca. great to Sure. So happy to have you. So so you are all members of the ILLOWA, I-L-L-O-W-A, ISACA chapter in the eastern part of Iowa that is uh, across the Mississippi River from Illinois, and it encompasses, from what I understand, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, Dubuque, East Moline, and Iowa City areas. Um, Jarrett, you are, as I understand, the current president. So, could you give us a little background on the Illawa Isaka chapter? And please correct me if I've been pronouncing anything wrong so far. <laughs> uh, that's uh, very common. Uh, Illawa is uh, you, you're Illawa. correct. You're correct. Yes, Illawa. <laughs> and in fact, when you have you know in English, uh, you know the I L L. If it's lowercase, they all kind of look like L's. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get that a lot, but we are um, um, we are on the east side of Iowa, uh, like you said, and western Illinois, and that's where the combination comes of the name comes from, Illinois and Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was actually uh, back in 2001 when we were formed, and uh, a group of folks from uh, IT professionals from the Quad Cities. Um, we're tired of driving to Des Moines every three hours uh, uh, for for meetings, and so uh, they talked with ISACA uh, headquarters and split off and formed their own chapter. So that's how we we got our start. Um, we were uh, their mandate was to focus on education and also to use technology as uh, much as possible uh, to cover their broad territory and accommodate busy work schedules. You know, I probably had some of your colleagues or maybe your colleagues that predated you there at that chapter uh, when I was much more active in our Des Moines, Iowa chapter than here in Des Moines, uh, because I I do remember the folks who would be carpooling over for those uh, <laughs> meetings. So definitely that's that's pretty interesting. I'm glad you guys have your chapter now. So um, how long have each of you actually been a member of ISACA itself? Solomon, how, how long have you been involved? I've been in uh, ISACA for a number of years, uh, more active as of recently, but a member for 
probably the six or seven years from now. Okay. And which of their certs do you happen to have, or if any? Right now, I don't have any of the Asaka ones, but I am in the mm-hmm. progress of trying to get uh, three of them by the end of the year. So pretty aggressively oh, wow. trying to get them. Yep. You're going to be taking a lot of uh, exams here this year. <laughs> yeah, so I found great. if you do them back-to-back, it's a little bit easier uh, because there are some overlaps between the certifications. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, Bill, how about you? How long have you been involved in ISOC, and do you have any certifications? Yeah, I've been involved with the ISAC organization since uh, 2006, so just over mm-hmm. 12 years. And uh, I have their uh, CISA, the Certified Information Systems Auditor Certification, the Certified Information Systems Manager Certification, or CISM, and the C-RISC, the uh, uh, risk-based certification that they provide. In oh, addition, I also, have, I, I also have the CISSP from ISC Squared Organization and the CIPP slash IT certification from the uh, privacyassociation.org. Yeah, that's great. I have all of those, too, except for the C-RISC. I don't have that. Um, I did get my CISA back in 1992, so I'm, I was notified that I'm a platinum member or something like that. I don't know if that – that doesn't really mean that anything other than I think I just get a – a piece of paper in the mail that says that, but that's still cool. <laughs> so, uh, Jarrett, how about you? How long have you been involved in ISACA and, uh, what kind of ISACA certifications and others do you have? Well, um, I've been a member since 2014. I guess that gives me the, uh, silver, uh, badge. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and, uh, um, I don't have any certifications, um, but I am involved in a study group. Uh, we're gonna mm-hmm. we have a group of us meeting in May to go through the SISM. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so with within your um, chapter, then, um, you know, what do you see with regard to membership and and who? Uh, you know, the backgrounds and the careers of those. I mean, many people who are not that familiar with ISACA, I think they still think it's just for IT auditors, maybe not some of the, the newer ones. But, you know, it's been an IT auditor organization for so long. I think some just still assume it is. But how do you think of the role of, um, you know, those who are within your own ISACA chapter there at the Ilawa chapter and... Uh, also, what do you think of as, you know, the IT auditor role itself, how it's been changing? Any of you can jump right in here. Well, uh, in 2012, uh, our chapter was 70 members. Um, six years later, we're at 138. Wow. It's incredible that, growth. <laughs> and, and are they primarily information security practitioners? Are they IT auditors? Um, what Mainly, kind of role? Yeah, mainly uh, um, IT audit, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, there's been a, a big initiative to push the cybersecurity side. And so we are getting more uh, technical people uh, with like their CISPs, who, you know, mm-hmm. a, a different certification uh, to get involved with the chapter. And uh, uh, they find value in uh, these uh, kind of sub-disciplines of audit and uh, security management. And are you seeing that a lot of your members, are they new to the profession or are there um, a lot who are also kind of been 
in this career for a while, and so you know they're they're joining to share their experiences and what they've learned. I mean, um, I'm, I'm curious about what ways in general does your chapter provide learning and networking among your members, and how the demographics of your your chapter members are uh, reflected. So Solomon, I don't know. Have you noticed? Uh, yeah, I would. I would say that um, the mix traditionally has been IT auditors, but we're starting to see more people come in from different disciplines. And my personal belief on that is because uh, there's other security groups out there and there's other types of professional organizations that are meeting, but it seems like the ISACA one is pretty uh, consistent and um, very economical and, and affordable for many people to get into, even if they're not a member. And so I think that that consistency helps drive helps drive new members or new people just getting interested in it. And, and because it's not just specifically one category, one topic, it helps for you know people who don't have uh, a broad experience or broad exposure level into either auditing or security. It gives them a more comfort level that you know they can be welcomed. And I think that's so important. I know a lot of the people who have contacted me, I uh, get them through, especially LinkedIn. Um, a lot of folks always saying, "Well, how can I get started?" And I and in security, you know, where should I go to find jobs? And I always recommend that they join ISACA or other types of membership groups. So you know, they get to know other people and they get to know what. Um, the different organizations are doing and the openings there. Oh, Bill, what have you seen as being a benefit um, to being a member of your ISACA group? And what have you seen with regard to how people are getting opportunities for um, getting new jobs through being a member or maybe networking and getting other types of opportunities? Yeah, it's a, it is one of the benefits of, of being a member of the professional organization, and that's true, I think, whether it's SACA or, or any of the others. Um, but being able to meet with and interact with uh, your peers in the industry uh, or for those that are looking to start into the career to get a sense of really what is it like and what is it involved, the networking opportunity you get uh, through the professional organization is worth its weight in gold. Oh, yeah. I mean, you... I'm still in touch with people that I met from back in the early 1990s through ISACA. I mean, you, you maintain those um, connections lifelong oftentimes. And I know there's also a lot of learning opportunities. Jarrett, I know your chapter has some great learning opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about your online chats that, you're, uh, <laughs> that they right. offer? Well, we're, uh, we've started an initiative to try to bring together our remote members, because remember, we're a large, large territory, and it's difficult mm-hmm. for people with busy schedules to get together. So we wanted to offer an online uh, video chat, and we're calling it ISACA Cyber Chats. Ah. Yeah. And so- uh, yeah, it's, it's, the meeting's meant, the format is meant to be participatory and engaging, uh, rather than, I guess, uh, teacher-student, maybe also known as death by PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it's also a way to encourage veterans, folks that have been in the industry for so long, to participate and to get mm-hmm. fresh, uh, you know, stay fresh with the current topics at hand. And, and then the newbies uh, can um, 
piggyback off veterans' experience to help them move forward in, uh, in their careers. Uh, it can help uh, maybe companies nurture workforce development um, and also allows the smaller one-man IT department uh, to have an opportunity or, and a community to network with, to discuss issues with on a regular basis. Because um, there's so many challenges, the technologies that arise, new vulnerabilities, new threat vectors, uh, just a place where we can just come and, and talk uh, with each other about them. So do you have a pre-planned topic for these chats or are they kind of just left open and say, you know, we're going to meet at, at this day and time and um, then just kind of open it up or is it a combination of both? We've we've had um, uh, them, been holding them uh, the second uh, Thursday of the month over the noon hour. And it the format starts just it's just open dialogue at first anybody you know can bring their issues mm-hmm. um but we do have set presentations that we call mini presentations they may be you know there may be five to ten of them in an hour uh but we can group discuss the uh, risk involved uh uh you know if there's any of these issues affecting a certain place in the business you know one of our members we can kind of explore that in depth mm-hmm. uh but it's a way for them, you know, us to just kind of help and diagnose and, you know, move forward on some of these uh, pressing issues. Well, in either of the uh, Bill or Solomon, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would echo that. And, you know, it's a great opportunity to ask questions, answer questions, and just get the stories and get the experiences from various people, which is, you know, I think just as important as reading something out of a book and, and Things change all the time. The mm-hmm. the real stories, the we've experienced this before, is is just really valuable. I think yep. it also gives us an it also gives us an opportunity to uh, reach into the uh, membership as a resource for that kind of information, leveraging the knowledge and skills that people have. Uh, although they may not necessarily feel as they're as though they're an expert, it turns out that many of them really are, and when they're given mm-hmm. an opportunity to talk about those areas where they have certain uh, expertise, it, it really gives them an opportunity to shine as well as others benefiting from that information that they're able to share. You know, I think that's such an important point because so many times I hear people say, well, you know, I, how can I do this if I don't know, know it yet? And my comments to them have always been, well, most of the information security and privacy professionals are dealing with new things every day. So that's perfect for someone who wants to learn something new and also build upon experiences you've already had and apply them to new situations. So I think those are great points you guys gave. Now, I I have listeners throughout the world. So you talked about uh, your calls being... Uh, at the noon hour, we're located in Iowa, and so that's in U.S. Central Time. Do you have these calls open to just anyone, or is this a member-only type of benefit? They are open to anyone, but uh, we do advertise the link first to our our membership, and we only have 100 seats available. Ah, okay. Uh, This is online. It's participatory. The way it really is meant to work is for participation. So if you have too many, it's going to get uh, rather cluttered. 
but also the technology that we use only supports 100 interactive uh, users. Um, Is it something that you record and make available to your members, you know, if for those that can't attend, or is it pretty much, you know, this is like a virtual live in-person gathering, so if you want to come, this is the time to do it. It can be. The uh, We have not uh, uh, recorded, but we the technology does offer that capability. Um, if there is interest, uh, that is something uh, we would uh, put out there for people to view. That would be great. I, I imagine probably a lot of folks would be interested, especially depending upon the topics, because my goodness, every day you hear something new that's going on, uh, either a new hack or a new risk or a new uh, or threat or a new vulnerability. Now, do you have a lot of, I mean, you're over there in the Iowa City area, and, and folks who aren't familiar with Iowa, um, we have the University of Iowa over where you're at. So um, in your area, do you have a lot of college students that are also members um, or even any high school kids? Do you, do you have student memberships? I, I think that's an area of opportunity for us. We, you know, we probably have a few students, but it's not something that we've really, in the last couple of years, taken a, a focused effort to uh, do the kind of networking that really we should be doing with the local university. Um, certainly there are uh, a number of folks there, and, and I see it through uh, my employer, where we take on a number of interns every year. And they, uh, almost all of them, express some sort of interest in uh, understanding more about data privacy and information security. Uh, certainly on the technology side of that internships, uh, they are keenly interested in understanding more about it. So it makes sense as an organization, as a professional organization, uh, mm-hmm. that we reach out to them and, and really put more emphasis on that. Oh, I think that's that's a great point. Now, you know what? I'm getting a message here that we are getting close to our um, break for our first um, sponsor. So uh, thank you, Jarrett, Solomon, and Bill. We're going to be right back, but now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We are speaking today about how professional associations can help boost your information security and privacy careers. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Contact me with questions and comments at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my website, Simmons360.com and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today with Jarrett Fluger, Solomon Smith, and Bill Wells, all members of the Illawa ISACA chapter. And I still know that I'm not saying that quite right. So let's continue. You're perfect. Our, oh, good, good. <laughs> so, so let's continue our conversation about professional memberships and so on. So I want to ask each of you, you know, what is your favorite benefit you found from your ISACA membership? And it might be either at the local chapter level or at the international level or, or some other way. But um, Jarrett, how about you first? What? What have you found is to be your favorite benefit or benefits of membership? I would say just the resources that are made available to me. Uh, when I was tasked to do a cybersecurity work back in 2012, uh, ISACA was the only formal local professional organization that came up on a Google search. Mm. So I came, I came to ISACA out of necessity to learn. And for me, the certifications are more an indicator of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, the learning process is more important to me. And it, you know, it, even if you're uh, technical, I've had, I have a lot of uh, programming and networking experience, but it takes five years of real world cybersecurity experience to even qualify mm-hmm. to receive a certification. Uh, that's a very good point, and and I do want to let our listeners know that if they go out to isaca.org, that's I-S-A-C-A.org, there are many resources that are open to the general public, but there are also uh, just a tremendous amount more. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's so much more that you get as a member uh, from that site, too. So, um, Solomon, how about you? Well, I will probably echo that, um, the relationships and the networking, and I would assume Bill will probably echo that too. But I think the other benefit that I have with um, ISACA is being able to present and being able to share my experience and my knowledge and get additional input and additional uh, information on the topics that uh, I present 
um, it just provides additional stories. So, you know, if I go into a specific topic and talk about one of my stories, some of my colleagues will talk about their stories, and that then enhances that particular topic for me going forward. And so, you know, obviously the networking is is crucial and, and very important, but also being able to share that knowledge back out to the community um, and being able to get feedback on that knowledge and on that presentation on that content. Well, and, and talking about, you know, the presentations and the content, certainly you've, you've been talking about your local chapter, but ISACA has events all over the U.S. and all over the world, actually. They have the, the CAC, C-A-C-S conference in uh, various regions, and they also have other types of, of um, conferences. Have you attended and made presentations at those as well, Solomon? I personally have not. In the fall, I'll be going to uh, a conference, but I believe Jared has got to travel, and I think even Bill has been able to travel with it, too. Oh, okay. Well, Bill, I mean, um, how about you with regard to your presentations, and then after that, you could fill us in on your other favorite benefits of uh, being a member or what you find as being valuable? Yeah, I think uh, over the last several years, uh, certainly at our local chapter events, I've given a number of presentations, uh, but I've also uh, done presentations, uh, for example, at the uh, Dallas chapter uh, when mm-hmm. they hosted um, one of our leadership conferences as well. Uh, the ability to get up in front of some folks you know, to, and, and share your information helps with your own personal brand as well. So, mm-hmm. when, you know, to Solomon's point about the benefits of networking, and doing the presentations, I, I see that as an opportunity for people to grow as an individual in the profession because it challenges you to make sure you understand the topic that you're presenting on very well. Um, mm-hmm. so, if you, so that that's certainly a benefit. Now, for me personally, uh, frankly, uh, being a member of ISACA opens doors. Mm-hmm. From a professional perspective, um, and that's probably why I have so many certifications, but uh, Today, when, when people are going out and looking for a, a job in, this, in these fields, whether it's information privacy, information security, IT audit, one of the uh, first things that the employers are looking for is, you know, wh- what are your credentials? Beyond just your mm-hmm. education credentials, what are your professional credentials? Do you have certifications uh, in your particular field of study? And having those certifications under your belt and then, you know, on your resume help open that door a little further. And being mm-hmm. a member of ISACA and the certifications that they offer is certainly a key component of that. So for me, it's been the ability to stay gainfully employed and help promote my own personal brand. And I think that is such an important point, too, especially for those who are trying, you know, are new to the field and they want to be able to see what other doors might be open for them. Just a quick uh, sharing of an experience I had in um, around 1994-95, I had created the dial-in solution at Principal Financial Group, which, if you can imagine then, that was uh, consisted of having a floppy disk that you had to take <laughs> take to your home and dial up through to get remote access. So at that time, it was cutting edge. So trust me, it was. But um, so I thought, well, I'll talk about this uh, solution about how we're providing this to, you know, hundreds of people. 
at the time. And I presented at, it was either ISACA or it might have been um, a CSI conference. But um, when I got to the room, I, I was very young, very inexperienced. I'd never talked in front of people before. And that room was packed. There was like 550 people in this huge room. I was like, holy cow, <laughs> this is a new experience. But, you know, I focused on the topic. But many of those people I met after the, the presentation, and they stayed in touch with me. And I did get opportunities through many of those people who were able to hear me talking about a solution I had created, and they became lifelong professional friends. So I think um, doing that, to your point, Bill, about opening doors and, and demonstrating your capabilities, that has always been um, a good benefit, and I think it will continue to be a good benefit for many years to come. Um, so as back to your chapter then, uh you know, what kind of social events? This is something, of course, people are really into social, uh, you know, interaction throughout their careers. So does your local chapter do social events like uh, banquets or any other types of things? Well, we're pretty well challenged uh, geographically in that in that area because we spend um, – you know, a large geography that is dominated, you know, uh, if you will, in the agricultural space, right? So we're this mm-hmm. large area of farm communities with huge distances between, you know, the cities that are in our region. So it's difficult to hold a social event that would be something everyone could attend, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. if you hold it in Dubuque, then it, the folks in Iowa City have uh, uh, quite a commute. If you hold it in Davenport, the folks in Iowa City, and so on, and uh, so uh, that's not something we've done a whole lot of in the last couple of years. Uh, in prior years, when we've done those kind of social events, we used to do what we called meet and greet. And mm-hmm. typically what happened is the folks who were members in the town in which the meet and greet was held would attend, but we didn't really get the attract, you know, we didn't attract the other non-members that we were really hoping to get. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. our experience has not always been all that great with, the, with those kind of social meetings. Now, that said, um, our fall and spring seminars that we do every year, as well as the cyber chat, do give us the opportunity uh, to get connected with each other, you know, reconnect with what everybody's doing, have conversations offline, um, and then afterward perhaps say, you know, a happy hour uh, at the venue. Well, I bet that uh, people probably enjoy that quite a bit, too. Um, they, they do. Um also, I'm gonna. I get together with other presidents of other uh, Isaka chapters around the country, and many of your larger cities will have a social event once a week. They'll just get together at a cafe, hmm. or um, or uh, just predefined times, and they'll just do mm-hmm. meetups. And uh, they can uh, they usually predefined presentations. They've got good speakers. They also have a lot of members. You now some of these. Chapters have a thousand members. Uh, we're we're smaller at 138 and spread out across a large territory. So the uh, resources we have available are just different than a larger mm-hmm. large, and that's why we are kind of promoting this ISACA Cyber Chats because it is an online way to bring together our community. 
Well, and I think that's a, a very effective way. Plus, I got to say, I'm looking forward to the one-day privacy class that you're having on April 25th. Um, I'm going to be coming over and visiting your beautiful area. I love it on the east side of Iowa. Of course, in the fall, it's even more beautiful than kind of right now before there's any green or or of, of leaves on the trees, but it's still great over there. So um, I know that uh, the privacy class was something when uh, you started talking with me about it was something that your members were interested in. So um, what kind of topics would you all... Any of the three of you and uh, maybe your members that you've heard of, what is it that they're looking to learn about the most at this privacy class that's on April 25th? So I think the, you know, the, the world of privacy has been changing, um, and specifically over the past few years, it's changing even more. And so I think just the awareness of what the current landscape of privacy and what it means and why it's important and then what the future looks like in terms of compliance, in terms of risk, in terms of uh, what people need to be aware of. I think it's still uh, an unknown for so many people. Just getting that exposure is really, really critical. And I think also the stories of things that have went well for organizations and things that have not went well for organizations are, are takeaways that people will be able to then utilize and and benefit from. Yeah, and I, I would add on to that that you know that this common the common question I hear is how is everyone else doing fill in the blank? Um, if it's compliance, if it's privacy, if it's risk management, uh, or audit related questions like how do you audit database X? Uh, what sh- what do you do for vulnerability scanning? How often do you do it? What tools do you use? And so that, that kind of sort of boots on the ground information is, is the question that I hear most frequently. Yeah, and for uh, smaller companies, um, what's the benefits of proactively implementing a privacy program as opposed to, I guess, meeting uh, minimum compliance requirements? I mean, for small companies with maybe one or two technical people on staff, how do you get started? And, you know, those are all great topics, so it's good for me to know, as you were talking about that, I was uh, taking mental notes about examples and different things I'm going to make sure that I bring in. Of course, case studies. I love case studies, Um, and there will be those in the class because, uh, as you all kind of alluded to, the fact that with privacy, it's not the same in every organization, even though you you might have similar types of personal data items, the context within which those data items were collected or how they're used is different. And so as, a, as an effect of that, you will have, have different risks. I mean, if you have uh, personal information for someone from a healthcare organization who's a patient, that is a different context than if you have personal information from someone who uh, maybe did shopping, uh, you know, at a, at a local store. So the associations that that person would have with those two different contexts would create additional types of privacy issues. And I'll get into that then. But um, I think that is something I'm really looking forward to. And also hearing from the attendees their feedback and their questions about it. Because I could tell you, Anytime somebody comes to me, like my clients and so on, they'll, when they start out saying, I have a really simple question for you about privacy, 
I know as soon as they ask the full question, <laughs> it's not a simple question because typically with privacy, it's just not a simple question. Um, so, you know, as you're, as you're reflecting upon what your members are telling you about privacy and their concerns about security and their concerns, what do you see as the biggest risk factors that your members are currently addressing, either your your IT auditors or your risk and governance professionals? And, you know, what have you seen are the most effective ways that businesses and your members can protect themselves? Well, let's take the first question uh, first. So, you know, what are the what you know, what are the biggest challenges that they're facing? I think it's still the age-old uh, culture of well, it'll never happen to to us. It always happens mm-hmm. to the other person. It always happens to the other the other company. It'll never happen to us. We haven't been breached yet, so uh, we don't see that as a big risk. And and that that mantra that um, you know, it, it has become somewhat of an adage among a, a lot of business stakeholders. And we did see some respite from that during, you know, the breaches that uh, were made you know, public here in the last few years, Target, for example, uh, Heartland Payment Systems, the Sony breach, and so on. But um, unfortunately, the pace and frequency of, of breaches that have been made public, uh, this morning I happened to see that uh, uh, Under Armour had experienced a, a breach and had mm-hmm. made it public. And unfortunately, this frequency of breaches it really kind of gives us, uh, let, let's call it breach fatigue, to the point where, okay, so Target got breached. But you know what? The reality is people still went back to Target the next day, used their credit cards, and bought products. And so there's this um, sort of undercurrent moving through the conversation around, so we had a breach. And that's bad, and we want to stop it, and we, won't, you know, we don't want those things to happen. But at the end of the day, the real cost is not so much in the brand image as it used to be, although there are exceptions. Uh, for example, with companies that have uh, contracts with government organizations that can uh, take on a whole new, uh, whole new dimension of concern in terms of brand impact. But uh, in the consumer markets, uh, you know, it's frankly... Uh, People are still going to go back to the stores they always bought from, and it's, it, we're not seeing, uh, from an industry perspective, this mass exodus away from companies who have had breaches. They just say, well, uh, we trust that the company is going to fix it and make it better and, and stop it. And so the real cost of the companies ends up being in things like legal fees, uh, notification requirements, um, paying for credit monitoring, and the hard dollars out the door associated with it more so than the brand image, despite the fact that you know, the Pony Money Institute continues to put out the marketing information around how much it costs per record breached, and uh, this year uh, marked some of the highest per record costs that they've announced. But, uh, and, and it's layered into that. They have loyalty metrics, how many customers walked away from the company. And so it, it leads to this, this layer of... of uh, let's call it debate and discussion, conversation around, so is it really a risk? And do I really need to spend money? I'm a, I'm a CEO or I'm a, a business manager that's got to make a decision. On, am I going to spend my dollars on building more functionality into my product? Or do I spend the dollars on uh, something more related to information protection in the way of you know, privacy protection, data security, and so on? 
And it's a, it's a balancing act. And at the end of the day, it comes down to this discussion of risk and making sure that at the end of the day, management understands the level of risk that's in play so that they can make the best decisions for their company. I'm going, to add, I'm going to add on a little bit to uh, what Bill said. Um, uh, I, I agree. Uh, risk is that conversation. I think um, uh, to kind of simplify uh, this conversation for um, non-technical people, um, when we hear the word breach, we sometimes, I think, get a little hysterical. Oh, my gosh. my you know, There are these, you know... Uh, heavy-handed fines or, you know, such that could come along with a breach uh, if you're the organization. But um, I think I think you have to think long-term. You have to think about maturing your cybersecurity program. You have to look at the resiliency. Uh, if a breach happens, how do we, how do we, you know, reconstruct, you know, the situation? How, how do we, you know, move forward? How do we improve? It's more like a tornado hitting your barn and then recovering from it. And I think we have to just, this is going to happen and we have to take steps to minimize it, try not to have it happen again, but it's, it's difficult. It's a very, it's, it's a difficult challenge that uh, we're addressing. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you might decide that if you have a lot of tornadoes, you'll build an earth burned barn, right? To mitigate right. your risk. So uh, Solomon, how about you? Yes, I would, I would echo what, both the guys said. And, you know, I think that biggest hurdle is for people to realize they're at risk. And then probably, you know, just as Bill said, it's, it's getting people accustomed to understanding what, what goes into that. But I think the next piece is once, once organizations or clients have said, okay, I know I'm at risk, it's the what's next. Where do I start? What's the first step? What kind of investment do I need to make? And people understanding that you know, security doesn't come free. There are things that you can do for free, but you may have to spend a little bit of money to reduce risks. And so, you know, we usually try to start with understanding risk and risk management as a very first step to know where those dollars are best spent. Well, and I would also add, you know, all good points, great points. Um, the the fines and penalties certainly are increasing. I mean, a lot of people, and I'm not sure how many of the organizations in uh, for the folks in your chapter have either clients or patients or customers in the EU, or they might have locations or workers or contracted entities in the EU, so you have that personal information. But the um, EU General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, is going into effect May 25th, and boy, what a lot of people are nervous about is the fact that the data privacy commissioners throughout the EU are, I mean, a lot of them are giving signals that they're ready to jump right on top of compliance and making sure that the folks, the organizations that have to comply are doing so. And, you know, if you've seen their potential penalties um, those can go as high as 4% of the organization's previous year's revenues. And that's got a lot of people nervous because if you think about it, just think 4% of your your profits from last year, it's either profits or full revenues. I need to look uh, back. I don't have that right in front of me, but either one's pretty significant. So yeah, it, is, um, it, it is revenue. And 
right. you know, the companies that work in a regulated environment, um, that's the, that is probably the single most important area of risk that we can highlight to the business management. You know, to make sure that they understand what compliance means and what it, and to Solomon's point, what kind of investment it takes to get to the state of, of being able to say, yes, we're compliant, um, but understanding, too, that just because we self-assert compliance, uh, the customers that we work with are often asking for an external opinion to corroborate that assertion. So we're being asked for, for example, you know, SOC 2 certifications, service organization control reports. Uh, we're being asked, are, are you compliant with the NIST cybersecurity framework? Uh, are you, uh, for the healthcare areas, are you uh, high trust compliant? Uh, it, so this compliance piece really has escalated in the last few years to the point of, and, and to your point, Rebecca, uh, it's it's darned expensive if you experience a breach and then get, um, uh, and that leads to triggering an audit from any of the government agencies. The audits themselves become very expensive, and the fines and penalties can be enough to put some businesses out of business. Mm-hmm. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, now, we're I, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of our hour. I want to hear from each of you what what final thoughts or uh, recommendations would you leave with our listeners about either wanting to have a um, a career in information security or privacy or about joining an association about anything we talked about what would be one thing each of you would want to leave our listeners with um, well, from my point of view, go ahead so from my point of view it's don't allow yourself to be pigeonholed, uh, and by that I mean if, you, uh, if you're looking to get into information security, those positions generally are looking for people that have a broad background in a variety of, of the uh, discipline areas. So if, you've got a, if you're primarily a developer by trade or by education, uh, it's, then my recommendation would be go into the infrastructure area and learn about its infrastructure support, the servers, the routers learn about networking, and expand your your base of knowledge to include other things than just how to develop an application or how to, mm-hmm. how to become a, a database administrator. Right. Having very, that broad very good. I, I hate to cut you off, but we got one minute before nope. uh, the show ends, so I want to get let Solomon and Bill get in here with a quick comment, too. Well, this is Jared. Well, um, I'll just say uh, expertise okay. comes with persistence. Um, and check out Cybersecurity Career Pathway. Uh, Google for it. Um, it has a nice little tool to help guide you on what you can do with a career in cybersecurity. Great. Solomon? And my final one is to just to reach out and connect with people, whether it be a professional organization, whether it be networking with uh, professionals, period. Just take the little jump, get an understanding, and then go from there. Great, great. Thank you, Jarrett, Solomon, and Bill for being on the show today. You've provided some great insights into careers and also information about ISACA to our listeners. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Please tune in to the show each week. You can contact me with questions, comments, and provide me with your show topic ideas. Send them to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activity, go to your job, and do 
do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information, how it's stored, secured, and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they're doing all they can to secure information entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Thank you.